All right, let's do it. Welcome everyone to Stock Market Live. I am Daniel Snyder and this is Austin Hankwitz. Austin, how are you doing today, man? I'm hanging in there, Daniel. How's it going, everyone? My name is Austin Hankwitz and I create personal finance and investing content online. If that's you know a deep dive written analysis shared to my Substack, or maybe like a short form video shared to my TikTok or a mix between the both of them, on LinkedIn, I'm always trying to do my best to make personal finance and investing easy to understand and just enjoyable to learn about. So I'm really happy to be here with Daniel. He's obviously really good at doing that. So we got a lot in store for you and really excited to share. Yeah, this is really exciting too, because we're, we're kind of just breaking down the barriers, right? We always said, oh, well, there's webinars that happen behind paywalls, but we're doing this webinar as well as broadcasting it live across all of our social media channels here at Seeking Alpha. So we want to interact with you. That's the whole point of this new show is to let people hear the data that we're looking at. You know, we're in the weeds every single day, looking at research, coming up with thoughts, analyzing how these things are affecting each other, as well as the macro economy, as well as individual companies and what that translates to stock prices, as well as valuations and everything else. Right. So as Austin mentioned, he has a stuff stack, he breaks it all down, but we're going to do it right here. And if you have a question as we're going through data, we really want to encourage you to just leave it in the chat box, leave it in the comment underneath this feed of the video so that we can answer it in real time if we can, right? We want to be here to help you. So without further ado, we got to get into it because, you know, we've only got so much time and we have our guest, Eric Bazmachin, joining us today. So let's kick it off, shall we? We're let's gonna do get it. Here we go. The CPI data that came out this morning. I mean, super hot number, right, Austin? Yeah, man, 9.1%, right? Uh, that was in incredibly hot. It was very interesting to see the specific categories. Um, it was it was very interesting to see that despite, I, I don't know if you guys do this, but whenever inflation data comes out, I always want to hear what, what the president has to say. So the first thing I did was I went to Twitter, right? And he's talking about how oil prices have come down, but the gas at the pump hasn't and all these other different things. So do you, do you have any data, Daniel, on, on the specific categories? I do, man. Perhaps? Yeah, I was just about to pull it up. So I actually went this morning and pulled the CPI data directly from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. And I mean, you just start to look at these numbers, right? Like, obviously, we know that gasoline shot up. Look at the month of June there. It's 11.2 energy commodities, 10.4. And that's why they keep coming out. The narrative today is really this is a lagging report, right? This is lagging of what gas prices were in June. And I don't know about you, but even this morning when I went to uh, the gym, I passed a gas station. It's back underneath $4 here in Georgia. So we're starting to see a retreat in gas prices. And so I'm kind of watching that. But my favorite thing to look at as well is the shelter, um, you know, rent prices. I think that's what a lot of people uh, keep hearing about as well is like rent's going up, rent's going up. And what do you think, Austin? Is this going to slow down or where are we at with this? Yeah, I think so. So so here's my thoughts, right? Um, if we kind of take a step back and, and look at the historical data that shows us when inflation has been like this, All right? So if we include this 2022 spike in inflation, uh, this has been the fifth time inflation has spiked above this like 8% CPI kind of um, range since 1948. So if each of the previous four instances required not only a recession, but a spike in the unemployment rate to go above 6% to quell the inflation, I mean, history could repeat itself here. And I, I think that we're going to have to see a lot of demand destruction if that's through, again, you know, unemployment rate or, or if that's through a recession, like for this to really come down. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, I, let's go on to some other slides I pulled here. This is, this was really interesting to me. This came from Charlie Biello. He put it out this morning where, you know, inflation is up at 9.1, right? We round up a little bit. And the last time that happened was pretty much 1981. 
So it's been a few decades, and but, but the difference is, is back then, the effective fund rates was near 12%, where today we're not even at two yet. And I think that's why everybody's starting to look at, okay, I pulled this around, I think it was 1030 this morning, the Fed watch tool that the CME group puts out of where the market is betting the next raise of rates will land. And now you're seeing there's 51% pretty much saying, hey, we're about to get a hundred basis point raise here next yeah. week. Yeah, that's wild. Absolutely wild. And it's kind of funny, you kind of like go back and think, you know, what was it, March or April when, you know, the Federal Reserve is talking about a soft landing and, and we want to be sure that we're approaching this with caution. And it's, it's interesting to see how their rhetoric has changed from, you know, we want a soft landing, we don't want unemployment, we want the, you know, we're going to push away a recession, or if it is a recession, it's a light recession, to now saying, hey, guys, we are fully focused on making sure that we curb inflation. We don't care if there's a recession, unemployment's going to spike, probably that's going to happen. And and it's like, if, if it's 100 bips, I remember 75 bips was on the table, and people think, no, 75 bips, that'll never happen. We don't need that. And now we're talking about 100 bips. in once it's just it's wild, absolutely wild. Yeah. And I think the big conversation right now, too, I don't know if anybody was watching halftime report CNBC. They just had Professor uh, Siegel on. Right. And he's talking about his viewpoints. And this guy, you know, so well respected within the entire industry coming out saying that, you know, he's been yelling for them to get aggressive about things. And now they're like, oh, we are still behind the curve. Right. And you keep hearing that. It's like, well, what is behind the curve? Well, all you have to do is look at the yield curve. Right. The yield curves and how bond prices are moving and the bond yields shot up, especially the two year this morning on all the inflation data. And I think what's interesting is people don't realize how it correlates to the 60-40 portfolio. And so I pulled this chart as well, where, as you can see, 2022 year to date of a 60-40 portfolio, right? We're talking stocks and bonds, splitting them pretty, not even even, but you know what a 60-40 portfolio is. And here's all the returns back to 1928 and pretty much... Like, look at it. You have 1974, which is 14%. We're beating that right now. You, like, you literally have to go back to like 1931 to when the Great Depression was happening and it went into the Dust Bowl and everything. I mean, obviously, 1937 is the war started. Um, I mean, it's just the numbers of destruction that we're seeing right now for the 60-40 portfolio and people going into retirement. Remember the baby boomer generation going into retirement now, relying on a lot of these funds. It's just getting into a real sticky place. It really is, man. It really is. And, and not just that, but the money that they've got saved, right? I mean, it's funny. My friend Jacob texted me this morning with the headline on that 9.1%. He's like, man, I don't even know what I'm supposed to be doing right now. I invest my money. Market's down 20%. I hold my money and I'm losing, you know, 9%. Like, like what, 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 what is even the, the other option here? And I'm, I'm sure, you know, we've seen the high bonds, but that only is that, you know, $10,000 is, is worth that. And, and you can't even take them out for, I think it's three years or something. But I mean, at the end of the day, inflation is a tax on the middle class, right? We're seeing that all across the board and we're, we're all suffering from it. Um, and it's, it's the harsh reality we've got to live through, unfortunately. Yeah, and I mean, you go back and you think about inflation is 9%, right? The market's down 20%. We're in a bear market. People are getting raises of maybe 3%. There's a lot of crunch being felt right now, but also I want to ask you, like, what's your opinion? Because over the last two years, I mean, we saw 20% returns in the stock market year after year, pretty much. And that's not normal, right? So doesn't right. it have to pull back? Yeah, absolutely. No, I'm, I'm on your team on that one, right? It's, and, and if you look at the forward price to earnings uh, ratio as, as where the S&P is right now, I think it's close to 16 times. Um, if, if we kind of backlog and think about, I think it was the dot-com bubble as well as 2008 and what had happened when 2018 um, 
we were seeing the price to earnings ratio kind of bop around 11 times, 12 times. So like we're definitely inflated. And, and I, I mean, personally speaking, I, I still think that, you know, we see this with inflation, this unemployment correlation, recession talks. Like, I don't think that we're going to, I don't think we're in a bottom by any means from the uh, S&P's perspective. Um, but, and then you also think about Michael Burry's tweet more recently talking about how this multiple compression, like, like the, the, the S&P 500 just traded down on multiple compression. Now we're going to see earnings compression and that's going to come in Q2 earnings, Q3 earnings, uh, all that fun stuff. So no, to your point, right. I think things have been certainly overinflated over the last several years, but, uh, hopefully now is a time where we come back to reality and, and can really truly begin to assign value to free cash flowing companies that are profitable doing all those really cool, really cool things. Yeah. I gotta tell you also, I mean, that's, so that's what I've been watching, right? I've been watching inflation. You've been hearing the news about Twitter and Elon Musk, and it feels a little bit of a distraction, but I knew, I know my eyes were just glued on this inflation number came across this morning. I got to ask you though, what, what's, what are you watching right now? What's on your scope this week? What are you looking at? So, so what I've kind of thought about is like, you know, obviously inflation is in everyone's mind. And I read in a, uh, a report from Deloitte that 84% of Americans are impacted by inflation. They're seeing it in their, in their wallets. They're seeing it in their bank accounts, right? So what I, what I think of now is well, what's happening this week is deal week. We're seeing Amazon Prime Day yesterday and today. We're seeing uh, Target having their own deal day throughout the end of today. Walmart's hosting their deal days this week. So like we're seeing these markdown prices all over the place. Our, our retail consumers getting out their wallets and saying, you know, inflation's kind of eating me alive, but I'm still going to go spend money. And so uh, a couple ideas want to want to run through here, right? First is going to be Target and Walmart's margins. Mm. We've seen, uh, I think it was on June 7, we saw Target share their release titled updated 2022 plan focused on inventory optimization, where we learned their big strategy, right? Big strategy here to get rid of this extra inventory on their shelves was to further mark down their items, remove excess inventory and cancel orders. They updated their guidance to include an operating margin of 2% versus the historical 6%. I know um, free cash flow from operations for, I believe it was Walmart was some like negative 1.8 billion or something. I mean, Walmart's profits are down 25% year over year. Inflation has been eating these companies alive and now they're forced to stay competitive with the likes of Amazon during these deal weeks. But are people spending during deal weeks, right? Is consumer spending really going to continue? It's not what we've seen. So, you know, consumer spending has decreased in relation to personal income over the last quarter or so. So how will this translate into deal days? During the month of March, personal income was up 0.5% with consumer spending spiking 1.1%, right? That was March. In May, this confirmed completely flipped on, on its head with personal income, you know, up another 0.5%, but consumer spending dropped to being up only 0.2%. And, and so I guess to me, what I'm really thinking about is as we have these deal days and as, you know, Amazon's favorite thing is to say, hey guys, we did, you know, $8 billion in GMV from this event. We did all these billions of dollars. How has that now, how will that change this year with inflation impacting that? Are consumers really pulling out their wallets as they were last year, the year, be the year before, or are consumers kind of having a step back and saying, you know, unemployment rates looking iffy. We've seen you know, the jobless claims rise, maybe inflation's eating up on, obviously you saw rent was higher, all these other different things you're pointing out earlier. Do I really want to buy that Keurig for 60 bucks? Do I want to go buy that new television for 250? How is the, the retail customer pulling out their wallet and spending their money? And I think to me, uh, as, as these new types of financials are going to be coming out from Amazon, I don't know if Walmart or Target will release this data, but Amazon always does. 
comparing that to historical will really give us a, a sort of clear picture on what's going to be happening, what's around the corner potentially for the economy. Yeah, you're talking about Walmart and Target, and I was looking right here. We had the the quant um, the metrics for profitability on Walmart, and I'm looking at the top line here: gross profit margin. Right, most recently was 24.9 percent, but you look at the five year average, right, 25.05. So they're under their five year average of gross profit margins. You just kind of wonder how low that's going to go. I wonder what. Hold on, let me go see what Target is. 28.3 versus 29.46. Like they're definitely feeling the crunch. Exactly mm-hmm. like you're talking about. I mean, that's such a good point because it, it kind of goes all together, right? The inflation versus the recession fears versus consumer sentiment dropping, which I think Eric Bazmich and our guest can really talk on today because, you know, he covers the macroeconomic environment. And the thing I want to ask you, though, because this is something that I, I was really curious about, you know, we, we have a, almost a record amount of what seems like a record amount of job openings still. Right. We're hearing about tech layoffs happening now. We're hearing about companies like Rivian saying they're about to lay off people. Microsoft's going to slow down. Google just came out yesterday with a letter. The CEO sent it out and said, hey, we're going to start operating really lean. We're going to stop hiring people that we don't need. We're going to focus on the engineers. We're going to focus on all the jobs that we need in order to grow the projects that we know will produce an ROI quickly versus probably their moonshot projects. Right. Like we're seeing these layoffs and we're seeing all these job openings. Um, I did pull this, actually. Let me throw it up real quick. This is exactly from the Fed. Um, 11.2 million job openings. So I wanted to ask you, like, what do you think about this? Is a recession even possible if there's so many job openings? Because even people that are getting laid off, like, it's still 1.9 jobs to one unemployed person. What do you think? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, I think that these numbers will quickly change. I think that the sentiment in the air, as you were talking about with these big tech companies as well, I mean, we saw this with Tesla, we saw this with, uh, who was it? Um, I mean, I mentioned four or five other tech companies, you know, Meta's been talking about this, right? Yeah. There's been a shift. And I'm sure you meant you saw this from Sequoia, uh, one of these large VC firms, um, they sent out a memo to all of their founders saying, hey guys, Here's how you navigate a recession. And this came out three months ago, right? So I think there's a big sentiment shift in mindset with hiring right now for the big, big, big tech companies, the big conglomerates, these big, you know, the smart, smart people. And that doesn't mean though that these restaurants, I mean, I go down to Nashville, right? I'm hanging out here at a taco shop and I can't get seated because they only have four waitresses or waiters and I need uh, you know, they need seven, right? They're trying to hire, they're trying to hire. So like, I think industry to industry, it's a little bit different, but generally speaking, just like looking at this, it just, the data doesn't seem good. And I think that we're going to see a lot of, you know, dynamic shifts in, in um, the unemployment and just jobless claims and all this stuff in the coming months for sure. Yeah. I mean, so my thought about it is, you know, it's very hard to have a recession when employment's so high. And I think, you know, right before we jumped on here, you and I were talking about this, how, even the Fed itself is now coming out projecting that unemployment has to go up in order for this inflation to get tamed. And so it's, uh, the other discussion is it's easier to remove job openings than it is typically to get jobs posted. Job openings can come down overnight, right? A lot faster, you know, stairs up, elevator down, right? And so I think we're going to probably see that at some point, but it's just kind of a matter of when because cash balances, we hear about corporations that are still so high. Um, but then it's just kind of matching up the worker with the skill set and, and finding that next position for them. But 
wage growth is slowly still trickling, right? It's starting to slow down a little bit, but I, I just, the only thing I can see inflation wise is if this, in, or sorry, recession wise is if this inflation doesn't come down, right? If, totally if right. this, if today was peak number, which I personally think today probably was peak number, right? I'm seeing gas prices go down. And we know that gas kind of dictates like the costs that are pushed on to consumers from grocery stores or wherever else, all that cost is pushed on. So if gas pulls back a little bit, we might be able to start to see a little bit of, you know, pull back on the inflation numbers. And I hope we do. I certainly hope we do. And I think, you know, it's, it's, it's good to think about the response lag between, you know, increasing these interest rates and how, how that might take three, four, six, nine months before they really are kind of the ripple effects go through the economy. I think we're just beginning to see these ripple effects from if it was, you know, March, April, May. Um, and, and now as we continue to rate hike, I think we're really going to see things change in a very dynamic manner in late 2022 and early 2023. Yeah, we're getting some good comments here from uh, Prince about the pits. On, uh, Prince is over on LinkedIn messaging us right now about the pips and calculating the pips and how he's, you know, the lesser the demand, the higher the supplies, things like that. Because it also is supply and demand, right? We got to remember that as well is, you know, as demand comes back, supply is going up, which is what Target said, right? Inventories are going up. We got to start running sales. Sales emails are all through the all-time highs. Um, I want to kind of go through this next part real quick uh, to try to catch up. So I grabbed this from David Kelly. Uh, from JP Morgan Asset Management. He puts out a really good note every week on LinkedIn. Um, talking about the 11.2 million jobs that we're talking about, though, with the 1.9 job opening. So you, I want to draw attention to the GDP, right? So however, it is important to contrast recent gains in employment with recent weakness in GDP. We currently estimate annualized real GDP growth of 1.5% in the second quarter, following a 1.6 contraction in the first, leaving real GDP down on the year. So, I mean... It goes back to we have a true market right now, right? We're seeing people that are like, well, two negative quarters of GDP growth. We're in a recession. People are saying we're in a recession right now. Others don't think we are. People are still seeing annualized GDP numbers come out. They're all over the place, right? Anything can happen. But let's keep moving. That wraps up what I was, I, I mean, inflation, job reports, it's, opening. Yeah, to your point, I mean, it's, it's, really, it's really crazy to think about um, how someone of such caliber i mean that guy's a rock star can completely say no the atlanta fed with the negative 1.2 percent is like we're not thinking that at all it's just it's it's crazy like to your point there's so many different opinions right now which is why we're seeing so much volatility whipshaws up and down left and right uh in the markets and and time will tell you know yeah all right let's keep it moving so i wanted to ask you what is uh you brought a chart for us why don't we go through this chart what do we have today yeah, let's go through the chart. So um, the chart I brought is the total amount of people who are paying for YouTube premium. So let's, I mean, let's talk YouTube premium subscribers. YouTube's obviously a company of, of, of Google, right? So let's make sure we're on the same page there. Uh, I'm a YouTube premium subscriber myself. I pay, you know, the 16 or so whatever dollars every month to skip those ads. And, and I love it. And, and we saw between Amazon and Grubhub, the type of extensive out of the box partnerships that can be made between membership services and these other interesting entities. I wonder if YouTube would consider something like that. The other thing I'm thinking about is, you know, we saw nine months ago that TikTok reported over 1 billion monthly active users on their platform. That's a short form video hub. We know YouTube is the king of content. They're the number two search engine on the internet behind Google itself. 
YouTube Shorts is certainly gaining steam. I went to VidCon in Anaheim. It's the like big, you know, content uh, conference every year. YouTube Shorts was all over the place. We're seeing big monetization levers being pulled now uh, from, from short form video uh, on YouTube. Is this going to continue? YouTube ad revenue is up 46% in 2021. Is this going to be up even more in 2022 because of shorts? Like there's, there's so many questions that I have for YouTube and around Google, how they're monetizing, how they're growing, what this means about general trends. Would love to know your thoughts. And if you have any hot takes on a interesting partnership as Amazon Prime did with Grubhub, if YouTube could with someone else, me, I think that, you know, and this is a guy who enjoys his fast Wi-Fi, as do you, Daniel. I would mm -hmm. love to see a YouTube partnership with like a Comcast or an Xfinity. It's one of these cool companies where I'm getting awesome prices on my Wi-Fi while I'm also getting, you know, streaming services on their platform. I think that's a perfect um, partnership there, but would love to know your thoughts. Yeah, so to break it down for you, I actually pulled uh, these YouTube statistics to show to everybody as well, because you're talking about YouTube versus TikTok, right? YouTube's coming out talking about how their shorts are doing incredibly well. Like they, they could be the ones to disrupt TikTok, in my opinion. Um, just how, you know, Meta used to steal everything from Snapchat. It, it, you can't copyright a function on an app, right? So there's no way that they can prevent them from doing this. But think about this, from Statista, over 2.6 billion people worldwide use YouTube at least once a month. Like that alone is such a large number. And it's no, like, there's no wonder why everybody goes to YouTube to watch videos. It's the place to go and get every kind of content that you want. Um, as regards to uh, the, the uh, question you had about partnerships, I agree with you. I could see something where it's, um, you know, they're getting into streaming. There has the potential to team up with a Comcast or a Time Warner, AT&T sort of thing. You know, they tried, my, my old college roommate actually used to work at Google back when they were trying to do fiber. And here in Atlanta, they were, you know, doing a lot of the new construction builds. They would go in during the construction process of an apartment complex, they wire up the entire complex, but what they couldn't do is they couldn't retrofit old apartment complexes. And I think mm, that's where okay. they're kind of, they're kind of stuck. When you think about it in that regard is, you know, Comcast has gone in, they, they use the cable fiber, like I got a new fiber cable myself, but they use the old cables as well. Um, and so they have that ability where everything is already established that if they need to go and just team up with somebody, that sounds like a brilliant idea to me, because you can't just go rip open drywall, put in new fiber cables everywhere, it just won't happen. Absolutely. Um, really excited to see that. I mean, personally, as, as someone who does create content on the internet, short form video written, all that fun stuff, TikTok is a beast, but the platform is only one component of this larger secular growth trend that is short form video. And it, you, we've seen it on Instagram Reels, we've seen or Facebook Watch, right? We're going to see that with YouTube Shorts. And I think as YouTube Shorts, because YouTube's always been from the perspective of a content creator, YouTube has always been the end goal, right? Everyone knows that there are people on YouTube that are monetizing like crazy. So from, you know, if, if we think that the stat, I believe it's 52 million people in the United States consider themselves content creators. And so as these people continue to create this content with the end goal of ending up on YouTube, we're gonna see a lot more ad revenue coming through the system. And this 46% might be higher, might be marginally lower, but I'm not gonna bet that it's gonna be below 30 throughout the rest of the decade. Yeah, one more point to that as well is I, I encourage people when you're on YouTube yourself, start counting the number of ads you see, right? This is something that I do for myself. Like, cause I think from an investment standpoint, I'm saying is Alphabet an investment right here? Like what makes them different than anybody else getting hit by Apple's privacy laws? 
where they can't track and target ads and get revenue, higher revenue off of that. Well, Google has Google Chrome, right? They control the web browser. And if you're going and searching on everything Google Chrome, I'm sure they have a way to then tie that back to you watching YouTube. So that's how they're going to be able to say, oh, we know the interest and we know how to monetize on this and, and really bring in additional revenue in the years to come. So that's why I'm a little, uh, I favor Google at these levels, right? Google's had a huge pullback just like the rest of the market. But going forward, I mean, there hasn't been like a year that this company hasn't really uh, grown and found ways to generate more revenue. And it used to be, you know, you get one YouTube ad before a video and now you're getting hit with two. And then you also get the YouTube ad at the end of the video. And I'm like, each one of those ads, they're generating revenue. So definitely a good point. Definitely a good thing to, to keep an eye on. Um, any last thoughts on that? Um, to your point, you know, YouTube's got this YouTube TV. Uh, I've got the Hulu TV myself. So I'm seeing those ads all the time. But we saw what Roku was able to do from a monetization perspective, um, you know, monetize or what is it like annualized uh, revenue per user, right? And, and that, that number grew exponentially. And so as YouTube continues to make their TV product, they're, now we're in every single home, maybe we're preloaded on these smart TVs, their ways of advertising and pulling that monetization lever are only going to increase 100%. Yeah, I agree with you. Before we go ahead and bring Eric in here to join us, I want to go ahead and run this quick poll for the people in the Zoom joining us over in the Zoom. Everybody on the social media channels, I'm sorry. Uh, you'll have to get the link to register to the Zoom, get in with the polls. So the poll question is, have you cut the cord? Go ahead, all of you joining us on the Zoom Live, look down at your screens, interact with us right here. We're getting a few yeses coming, trickling in. Seems like we're getting up, sort of. We do have a sort of, slash cable, slash streaming, trying to find your way out. Um, awesome, personally, you cut the cable? I've cut it. It's gone. I'm on a Hulu TV. I, I'm paying. So actually, they, they, I got bamboozled. I'll tell you what. I got this promotional deal with Hulu TV. It was like 50 bucks a month, 45 bucks a month. Every kind of six months, they're popping me a little bit higher. But I love the product so much. I get the live sports. I'm a big sports guy. So I'm watching college football. I'm watching, you know, and all these really cool uh, sporting events. And they've got that on Hulu. And so at it, it, 55, 60, I'm not paying $74 a month for it but I'm a fan. I've cut the cable. It's gone and uh, I'm enjoying it. Yeah, we've cut the cable as well. All right, well, let's move this ship on along. Eric, why don't you go ahead and jump in here and join us? Let's start talking about your thoughts and what you're seeing with this macro economy, the inflation, the recession, the job openings. Hit me. First off, let me stop. Everybody, this is Eric Bazmachian. If you don't know him, he's a man, he's a myth, he's a legend. He runs EPB Macro Research, a Seeking Alpha Marketplace service. The guy blows my mind. You just put out a note today. I was running through it completely on point to what I think is going on with our economy and our stock market right now as well. But let me let you take it away. Yeah, thanks, uh, Daniel. And I just want to start by echoing on some of the points that you guys were making. Um, today, the inflation number was, was higher than expected. And in the report that I put out today, I called it an unmitigated disaster. And it's not because that the inflation number was high, it's because of the lead lag time of monetary policy. What, what's happening now is every time the inflation number comes in higher than expected, the market ramps up the expected number of rate hikes and the peak in the Fed funds rate that's expected to happen. So um, today we priced in, you know, like you guys were mentioning, uh, 75, maybe even 100 basis points at the next meeting. And we're pricing in the peak in the Fed funds rate to be about 375 now in December of 2022. 
The problem, as Austin was mentioning, is there's a tremendous lead lag time between hiking interest rates today and how that impacts uh, the economy and inflation down the road. And it's a little bit of a, uh, of a ridiculous exercise that we take an inflation number that was for June and we extrapolate that we need more rate hikes today to combat a number that was in the past. We also have to remember that inflation is probably the most lagging indicator that we have next to employment. It's extremely common for inflation to peak uh, during or even in the middle of a recession. So we're not talking about inflation peaking you know, in, in the months before a recession. Inflation peaks sometimes in the dead middle of a recession. So if the Fed is going to continue hiking rates and accelerate the pace of those hikes until inflation comes down, the reason it's an unmitigated disaster is because they're going to be accelerating the pace of their rate hikes into the deepest part of the recession, which is going to cause extreme pain in the economy in the six to eight months down the road when those lead lag times do eventually flow through. Uh, one thing that I focus on a lot inside my service at EPB Macro Research is the sequence of economic events, the sequence of economic indicators. And when we focus on employment and inflation, the most lagging part of that sequence, and we use tools like monetary policy, which is in the beginning part of that sequence, it's totally out of balance and it creates a situation where they're almost always going to be accelerating the tightening into a recessionary environment, which creates a big problem for risk assets like we're seeing uh, over the last couple of weeks and months. Eric, I want to jump in here first. I mean, you just mentioned the risk assets. Should people be expecting risk assets to continue to get hit from here with this reaction? So based on my analysis that the, the economy is going, we're not in a recession currently, but the economy is going to slide into a recession, likely by year end, if not by Q1 2023. My view is that it's going to be by, by the end of this year. Uh, and the problem with the lead lags of monetary policy is if the Fed stopped tightening today, we still have a lot of growth slowing that's going to come based on the tightening that's already been in place. So the economy has decelerated enough where we're in a vulnerable window where a recession is going to develop over the next couple of quarters, but we're still tightening monetary policy. That means that the slowdown in growth is not going to end in the first part of 2023. As, and, and this is something that's going to be very difficult for a lot of investors to handle because we're used to very quick rebounds in risk assets. We're not used to protracted downturns in the economy, downturns that can last multiple years, let alone multiple quarters. So based on the way that everything is set up right now, economic growth is going to slow until at least the midpoint of 2023. And it could be longer than that, depending on how long and how hard the Fed tightens. If the Fed does in fact tighten policy all the way till December 2023, that means that the slowdown is likely to last through 2023 and potentially even into 2024. Now, we don't know if they're going to tighten all that way. A lot of people think that they're going to pivot and maybe they pivot prematurely. We'll have to see what happens. But the setup is, is quite dangerous here because there's a lot of slowing that's already baked in the cake based on the tightening that they've already done. And there's no signs that they're going to slow down. So we're going to have a very protracted downturn in the economy that's likely, in my view, to last until at least the midpoint of 2023. So uh, I think that the, the situation for risk assets is going to be difficult. You guys were also mentioning that we've had a 20% decline in risk assets so far, but we've had almost zero decline in earnings expectations. All of this decline in risk assets has been a function of a change in interest rates. Interest rates go up, asset prices come down. That's why we've seen the simultaneous decline in both stocks and bonds. 
the next part of this, this bear market or the next part of this economic slowdown since the economy is going to continue to roll over is we're going to see earnings expectations come down. And, and in my view, quite dramatically so. So we're, we're, we're not out of the woods uh, in terms of the, the, uh, the tough sledding for risk assets. Hmm. That's so, really interesting. Oh, go ahead, Austin. I was going to say, so a question that just comes to mind immediately is whenever I hear risk assets, I think of the riskiest assets, right? And those mm-hmm. are, I mean, that's like ARKK. ARKK. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and ARKK has been in a bear market now for the last 18 months. And we've seen it yeah. kind of trade sideways over the last, call it six weeks, maybe eight weeks. Personally, now this is obviously just me, but I don't know if you guys have seen, uh, what's his name, but he's got like the stage analysis where we see like the oversold and like the accumulation phase and stuff like that. Right. And, and now that we're 18 months into a bear market with ARKK and these really risky, risky assets, right? Unprofitable, not free cash flowing companies. I want to think, look, right? Well, I mean, I feel like I don't know what the market's green or red right now. I think it was red at the open and now it's green. Who knows? But and it's seven cents. It's up seven cents today. Like yeah, but I guess what I'm saying is like, you kind of see since, you know, what is that? May, late, mid-May, it's kind of just traded sideways. And so I wonder, Eric, if you have any perspective on maybe some of these extremely risky assets mm-hmm. already have sold off that 70, 80% that assumed perhaps the interest rate compression, assumed perhaps the earnings compression that we all agree on here. Um, I don't know. I just, it's, it's just something that, that I think about. Yeah. Um, Daniel, if you want to throw that chart of ARC back up on the screen, uh, if, yeah. you, if you look at when ARC peaked, uh, maybe you pull the five-year chart up, yep. uh, it peaked in February, 2021, right? Yeah. Uh, and then Daniel, if you want to throw the four factor coincident index chart that I sent to you, yeah, uh, the like composite that. index, uh, for, for people that may be new to my work, uh, just a quick explanation. This is, this is my proprietary index of how I measure economic growth in the economy. Go to the, uh, the next one. Um, that's a combination of, there you go. When did that peak? Same time. It's like February right? 20, yep, yep. Okay, yep. so what does that mean? It means that asset prices are correlated to the rate of change of the direction in economic growth. Economic growth peaked in the spring of 2021, and that's when you saw the, the, the riskiest assets peak and start to decline. So why has ARC stabilized now, right? That's the question. ARC uh, and these more speculative tech companies are expressions of super long duration assets. They have no earnings today. All of their earnings are based on you know, hundred years into the future, right? So they're super long duration assets. So they are going to be most sensitive to changes in long-term interest rates. Over the last six weeks, what have we seen? We've seen long-term interest rates actually start coming down. What's really interesting today is we had a crazy high inflation number, right? We're, we're expecting the Fed to hike rates even more we're, we, we were pricing in 75 basis points. Now we're pricing at 100. And Daniel, if you want to pull up a chart of TLT today, which is long-term treasury bonds, what's happening? Long-term treasury bonds are up. And they're not up a little bit. They're up almost a whole point, right? So if you go back to maybe the last month, Daniel, on the, on the one-month chart, we see uh, interest rates are coming down or long-term treasury bond prices are coming up. That's going to be most beneficial to long-duration speculative tech companies like ARC. Uh, so I don't necessarily think ARC is, is going to be a great place to be. I think that if all assets go down, then, then ARC will, will follow suit. However, as we transition to this next phase of the bear market, a bear market that's going to transition from uh, just an interest rate story, interest rates are going up, it hurt tech the most. It hurt ARC the most because they're the most sensitive to changes in interest rates. What's going to happen next is as the economy rolls over and goes into an actual recession, 
the long-term interest rates are probably going to come down. The yield curve is going to invert. That's actually going to help the, the duration-sensitive companies like technology companies. But the earnings are going to come down, which is now going to hurt the cyclical. So you're going to start to see a transition in the market, in my view, where the declines were led by tech and duration-sensitive assets. The declines are now going to be led by your earning-sensitive assets, your consumer discretionaries, your industrials, your materials, your financials, things like that. So that's my view on why ARC has sort of stabilized here. It's really an interest rate story. Do you guys see it. this, though? The top holding being Zoom video now? 10% of the ARC KK <laughs> fund is Zoom? That's interesting. Like, I feel like I've seen some crazy headlines of, of Kathy Wood saying that they're going to just explode but it's, it's i feel like i can't take her too seriously anymore <laughs> well she she did the the number one thing you don't do is she went on tv doubled down i mean look at this our quant system even ranks the subclass it's 23 mm -hmm. out of 24 in the class like how yeah. are people still throwing flows at this at the end of the day these these super super speculative companies are just are just incredibly long duration assets that are that are bets on long-term interest rates. So, so as we've seen long-term interest rates move up quite a bit, these assets have gone down 80%, 90%. If, if we move into a world where we see interest rates fall back down towards zero, these assets will, will, will benefit again, whether they're actually good companies or not. They're just, they're just expressions of duration in my view. Yeah, because it's it, it, you know you have no earnings today. It's really difficult to to argue against somebody that says you know a a Roku or you know I don't follow these companies that closely, but a Zoom you know nobody can tell you what's going to happen to these companies in the next one year or two years. They have no earnings to begin with. All you need to do is sell somebody on a story of, of what they're going to be 10, 15, 20 years down the road, and then you discount that based on some crazy long term interest rate, and there you have a, an insane valuation. So. It, they're really just tethered to changes in interest rates. What a great perspective. I, uh, I love the feedback, Eric. Thank you. Yeah, I just want to remind everybody that's tuning in right now, too. Like, this is open for you to ask questions in real time. If Eric's saying anything that you have an immediate question pop into your head, jump into the comments under the video, whether you're on social media, jump into the chat if you're on Zoom. Um, we are here to answer your questions. Now, Eric, I want to get back to you while we're waiting on some more questions to trickle in. Um, you sent this, this graph of the real M2 money stock supply. Mm -hmm. Why don't you go ahead and walk us through why you sent this over and what it means to you? Sure. So um, this chart shows real M2. So this is M2 money supply deflated by the CPI. So it's real M2. Sort of like when you look at nominal growth versus real growth, this is real M2. This is the real M2 money supply. And the reason I deflated by the CPI is so I can compare it over, over history, periods when we had 10% inflation, periods when we had 2% inflation. Um, and... In, in all honesty, M2 money supply isn't the best way to measure uh, you know, monetary growth or liquidity. It, using something like other deposits at commercial banks, it, it tests a little bit better, but it's a little bit more involved. And most people sort of understand the concept of M2. So we're just going to go with we're going to go with real M2. And, and what this shows is that over long periods of time, if you go back over the last 60 or 70 years, Real M2 has increased at a 3% rate on average. Over the last 10 years or, or 12 years from 2009 to 2020, it increased at a 4% annualized rate on average. So that, that, that red line is the trend of, of where uh, Real M2 happened. And what happened during COVID was we had a merger of the Fed and the Treasury, which technically is not allowed. There was a total violation of the Federal Reserve Act with these special purpose vehicles. 
Uh, and there was a merger of the Fed and the Treasury. And what they did is they combined and they engineered a pretty significant increase in liquidity, which you could see in this chart. Now, increases in liquidity don't always translate to inflation because it depends on the velocity of money. Uh, another concept that, that I go into inside of my service. But basically what happened is the Fed and the Treasury combined and they created this mountain of liquidity. And we know based on the, on, on the, uh, the decline of velocity that most of this mountain of liquidity was channeled into financial markets. And financial markets could mean anything. It could mean bonds, it could mean Bitcoin, it could mean uh, stocks. And because housing is increasingly financialized, it could also mean housing. So we saw most of this money supply, most of this increase in liquidity was channeled into financial assets. Now the Fed is tasked with the goal of trying to reverse this mountain of liquidity, which means it's mostly coming out of financial assets. That's why, you know, despite the fact that the market's gone down 20%, 30%, it's been quite orderly. It sort of just felt like a vacuum, someone just taking froth right out of the market. It's been sort of down one, two, three percent every day. There's been no chaos. There's, you know, it's not like it was during COVID. It's been quite orderly. As the Fed continues to drain this liquidity, which is the current path that they're going to do through rate hikes and through their quantitative tightening program, this money is going to continue to come out of financial assets. And what's important here is the Fed has to continue. Uh, on this trajectory, despite the economy going into a recession and despite asset prices coming down because they made a big mistake combining with the treasury and creating this, this mountain of liquidity. So the Fed can't respond to asset prices this time. They can't respond to the economy going into recession because if they do, and they, and they do a you know, COVID part two stimulus before this mountain of liquidity is completely reversed, they're going to re-energize this liquidity and, and cause inflation to stay elevated for longer and potentially even accelerate beyond where it is now. So long story short is inflation is very high now, but the Fed is on a course to reverse it. The path that they've outlined, which is raising rates to about three, three and a half percent and doing quantitative tightening will reverse this inflation and it will put us back into a situation that we were prior to COVID of low inflation and, and weak growth. That is going to happen if the Fed stays on the course that they've outlined. However, they created such a mountain of liquidity that if they decide that they cannot go through with this because asset prices are, are becoming chaotic or the economy is starting to fall apart and unemployment rate is rising, then they're going to re-energize this liquidity before it's fully out of the system. So they need to, uh, they don't need to, you know, continue accelerating rate hikes into 2023 and beyond. They just have to be very, very cautious about re-stimulating policy with quantitative easing and re-stimulating policy with a combination of fiscal. That was really the, the, the dangerous cocktail. So uh, what we basically have to see is the Fed has to um, stay tight and they just can't ease. Uh, despite what happens in financial markets and, and what happens to the economy, which is, again, something that investors aren't really uh, used to happening. They're used to the markets going down 20, 30, 40 percent and the Fed responding. Uh, they're not going to do that this time. And if they do, it's going to end up being a bigger problem than, than if they actually just corrected the first mistake, which was marrying the Fed and the Treasury, which is technically illegal, which is why it's illegal. Right. Yeah. Yeah, great take, Eric. We had a question come in from Steven on, uh, he's watching us via YouTube. He, said, he wants to know, what's your view on commodities tanking as rates uh, are getting the hikes and inflation still spiking? And he, he was actually specifically asking with the gold sell-off, what's your mm -hmm. take? 
Yeah, so commodity prices are plunging mainly through the industrials, mainly copper, you know, rosin, rubber, all the main industrial commodities that are sensitive to growth. And those are what we call short leading indicators. So I, I mentioned the economic sequence that I, that I talk about in my, in my service is we have long leading indicators, which gives us a lead about 12 months of what's going to happen. Then we have shorter leading indicators, which give us an idea of what's going to happen two to four months down the road. And these industrial commodity prices like copper fall into that short leading indicator bucket. So the fact that those prices are sort of collapsing is a, is a sign that the, uh, the industrial metal space is sensing that two to four months down the road, growth is really gonna take a step function lower, which is where my recessionary concerns come in. So the industrial metal complex is falling sharply because as they hike rates, recession odds go up. And as recession odds go up, the industrial, the demand for these industrial metals goes way down. So the decline in industrial metals is pretty clear cut, just a fear of recession. The oil prices are a little bit more complicated with what's going on in Russia and things like that. But those prices have also softened because in a recession, demand for oil goes down, although it's a little bit more price inelastic. Uh, so pretty cut and dry. The, the story with uh, industrial and growth sensitive commodities is a recession scare. As far as gold, Gold responds to changes in what we call real interest rates. So it's, it's nominal interest rates minus inflation. And gold is declining again, because as interest rate hikes are, are priced into the curve, real interest rates start to rise and that puts downward pressure on gold. So, so the, the more the Fed hikes, the worse that's gonna be for gold. And, and gold, unlike any of the other assets, what gold wants is a really quick and abrupt pivot from the Fed. It would be disastrous for, uh, the, for the real economy. It'd be disastrous for all of us on this call. It would really damage our real incomes if the Fed pivoted before this mountain of liquidity was, was withdrawn. But if you're a gold investor, that's exactly what you would want. Yeah. Prince on LinkedIn says, yeah, you good. <laughs> a great compliment for you. Perfect. Awesome. Thank you. you. Awesome. What's your take on commodities? What are you looking at right here? Well, I think to Eric's point, the uh, copper, right? I, I shared something about a week ago showing the dramatic drop in price in copper that we've seen. And I, you know, to your point, like copper is that, that one commodity everyone uses to build stuff with, right? And to think about how in the next two months, three months, four months, the short term, short term sort of time range that the price of copper is coming down dramatically shows that, you know, to Eric's point again, the growth is not going to be there in this, you know, short term time period. And so, yeah, I mean, that's that's the that's my hot take. If it's even hot, it's that we're, we're going to see a, a big drop in growth for sure. And and I think the prices and commodities are showing that. Man, going off hot take, I think my hot take, and I want to ask you guys, uh, you know, personally, what do you think? If you have even thought about this, because I'm. I think a lot of people are like, why is gold still the reserve, right? Like gold prices are pretty stagnant, kind of performing horribly actually in this environment, just like bonds and everything else. But isn't copper kind of like our new gold? Like wasn't gold so sought after and now copper is so sought after? Shouldn't copper mm -hmm. be our new reserve? Yeah, copper is interesting. It's just there's so many industrial uses for copper. They call it Dr. Copper, right? Because it's, it's prognosis on the economy, right? When, when copper prices are rising rapidly, it's like, wow, there's like, like Austin said, major industrial demand, major construction demand. And for actually the last 12 years, the biggest driver of, of copper prices and all these industrial metals has been China, right? China's done unbelievable residential fixed investment. That's these, that these apartment buildings that they put up like, like you know, at unbelievable speeds, whether people need them or not, they're putting up apartment buildings. It's obviously led to a lot of problems like with Evergrande and, and the situation that's still not fully resolved. 
But over the last 12 to 15 years, the demand for copper from China has been through the roof because of this industrial, um, I'm sorry, this residential fixed investment that they've been uh, conducting. And that's sort of stopping. They realize that they can't push that model much further. They have all these buildings, they're bad debts, nobody's living in them. And they realize that they can't keep pushing that model further and further and further. And that's going to take a huge tailwind away from copper. It's absolutely the marginal driver of copper prices. So it's going to be interesting over the next 12 to 18 months to see what happens to copper as the U.S. economy slows, but also we don't have that sustained tailwind from just unbelievable construction in, in China. So uh, it's, it's going to be a difficult road for copper is, is, is my view. Are you expecting, uh, I mean, there's been reports coming out lately. I don't you know if you have a view is like China is talking about their quantitative easing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. If you look at all the central banks around the world, right. A lot of people like to call the demise of the dollar. And they said the fed was never going to be able to tighten. And, and what do we see now? The dollar is screaming and who's not tightening. Europe is falling apart. They're, they're basically uh, balking on their plans. They say they're going to they're gonna try and save Italy and, and cap the spreads. Japan never even started, and China doesn't want to tighten either. So no one wants to tighten, but we're tightening. And, and what's happening is the dollar is screaming, but that's actually going to be a big problem for the global economy because everybody in one way, shape, or form has dollar-denominated debts. And as the dollar gets stronger, it's going to make it much more difficult for them to service those debts. So Uh, I'm a long-term dollar bull for exactly that reason. I believe that the U.S. is in a bad way in terms of our long-term trends, but we're better than everybody else. So our capacity to tighten monetary policy is is more than than Europe, it's more than Japan, and it's more than China. And I think that we're seeing that prove out right now. These other countries, they have worse demographics, they have larger debt burdens than us. They simply cannot tighten at all. And every time we try and tighten, the dollar's just going to go right up because that policy divergence is going to get larger and larger. So from here, I mean, to, to move this into investing terms, I mean, I know you like to recommend defensive stocks a lot of the times, mm-hmm. um, but I, I can't help but think about like take NATO, for example, right? They, they all are coming out saying that they're going to spend 2% of their GDP on, on military spending and stuff like that. But if, if dollar is getting stronger, it pretty much, I mean, we're going to see a lot of our exports getting crushed from countries not being able to afford what we're now charging because of the, the strength difference. But mm-hmm. is the military defensive sector pretty much like one of the only guaranteed sectors in that regard of being like, oh, well, these countries are going to buy military equipment no matter the cost? Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, it would definitely be a non-cyclical sector. So, so my, my view generally is when growth, global growth is accelerating, you want to be in your offensive, your cyclical sectors, right? You basically, you want to take as much risk as you possibly can when global growth is rising. But when global growth is falling or when global growth is decelerating, that's when you want to be defensive. And you want to, that's why I recommend defensive stocks. But really what I'm trying to say is, is non-cyclical stocks, right? So your utilities, your consumer staples, your healthcare, these are industries that don't fluctuate with the economy as much as compared to things like industrials or housing and things like that. So my preference for uh, defensive companies is really just you want to be in companies that are less sensitive to the economic cycle. You want to be in stocks or sectors that are less sensitive to the changes or, or the probability of recession. The defensive uh, military stocks could, could fit that absolutely because they're, they're going to be much less sensitive uh, to those changes. The ones that you really want to avoid 
are the companies that are highly cyclical, the ones where their earnings change dramatically based on changes in the economy. And generally that's, that's your highly cyclical construction, you know, uh, mining and materials and, and, and things like that. So um, my, my preference for defensives is not a permanent uh, view, it's just a view on where we are in the economic cycle. When the economic cycle is declining, the economy has the probability of going into a recession. You just want to be careful of companies like, you know, maybe like Caterpillar uh, that, that has a high sensitivity to, to changes in the economy. Yeah, good point. Austin, what kind of stocks are you looking at right now, knowing everything that's going on? Oh, it's a good question. Um, to be honest, like I've been really focused on, well, I guess there's two answers to that. I've got my friends over at QuantBase. I'm not sure if you guys have heard of them or not, but they are a, I think it's the, the, the world's first SEC registered high risk investing uh, platform, RoboAdvisor. And uh, they just released this report talking about crisis investing and how um, there's like seven specific characteristics that during times of crisis, companies that fit these characteristics, you know, profitable, deleveraging, uh, things of that nature, um, tend to do very well. So just kind of keeping an eye on what that looks like and like what those companies might turn into, but specifically myself that I've been excited about. And this is more of just like a secular growth trend than it is right now. Cybersecurity. I, I'm just super interested in cybersecurity and how that will continue to expand as the online. I mean, we saw what happened last year with the uh, what was the hack with the oil? Um, was it the pipeline? I mean, that that just catalyzed a ton of awareness around every other company now to begin taking cybersecurity much more um, just seriously. And and to me, finding those if it's Palo Alto Networks, if it's Fortinet, if it's CrowdStrike, finding those cybersecurity companies who are free cash flow positive, who might have just flipped free cash flow positive like CrowdStrike did last year, um, or or are just just operating in this massive secular growth trend that is cybersecurity is really interesting to me. That's a really good point. Have you given up on tech, though? I think is a big question. Um, I, I think the only big company that's obviously in tech that I'm still excited about is Google. And that's because of YouTube, because this you know, short form video content that I know very intimately. <laughs> um, so I, I'm, I'm still excited about them. But generally speaking, like, I'm not betting the farm anymore. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not pushing a lot of money into Apple and Microsoft and, and especially ARKK, like now just seeing how that is, has, has been explained so uh, incredibly well by Eric here. It's just so interesting to see how, how all of these different types of factors are, are, are impacting the companies we know and love. Um, but Google is, is still on my, on my list for sure. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, let's go ahead and start wrapping this up because we are about almost at an hour. I'm going to go ahead and throw this slide up here on the screen. If you guys want to get in touch with us, you can find us on LinkedIn, on Twitter. You can find Eric on EPV Macro Research. Of course, everything we talked about today were just opinions, what we're watching, checking out the data, bringing it to you, having a good discussion. Thank you so much for your questions. Thanks for interacting with us, telling us about your cable cutting and everything else going on. If you want to reach out, please reach out. Um, and if not, then, you know, hopefully you at least join us next week when we come back next Wednesday, 1 p.m. Eastern, we'll have another guest for you. But this has been Daniel Snyder, Austin Hanquist, Eric Bazmachan, and this is Stock Market Live. You guys take care and have a great rest of the week.